you have occasions to discuss with Guy Hines Jr. any issues that he might have had with his father having money and not spending it the way he wanted it spent? Yes. Tell us about that. He came and he was talking about the money thing. He said that um, his daddy was going to give money to Joe for a swim boat and rusted for a trailer. He said, man, my daddy ain't never done nothing for me and my brother. Man, I'm gonna kill him. I'm gonna kill them all. I said, hey man, you can't be doing that, man. You know, there are people who say, well, I'm just gonna kill them people and, and it means nothing. Was that the way it was said in this case? No. Thank you, Your Mr. Parker, if I understand, it was June, July, or August that Mr. Hines started telling you about killing his family, right? He told me twice. During that time frame? Right. August 2009, correct? Right. Would it surprise you if I told you that his last day of employment was in September of 2008. Maybe. Why did you wait for a year to call law enforcement? No, 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 no. The truth of the matter is, is you did hear about this crime. You, you saw it on TV and you read about it in the paper, right? Everybody seen it on the news and read it in the paper. That's Including the you. There was a sensational crime, and you saw an opportunity to sit in that witness stand and grab your 15 minutes of fame. Isn't that right? I don't need fame, buddy. I'm a minister. So, therefore, I don't need that. Where do you minister, sir? I travel. I speak down in Florida, some North Georgia. So, you represent yourself as a man of God? Yes, I do. What do you think about taking the oath, sir? Judge raising your right hand. At this point, I'm going to object. He's being argumentative with this witness. He's saying things that are improper for a professional to say in this courtroom. And I'm just withdrawn, Your Honor. Well, hello, Jake Brown with the Mouth of the South, Episode 2. I want to bring up something, Mark, that you probably know a lot about, and it's uh, I had to Google this term. Jesse, I know we just looked this term up. Histrionic. Is it histrionic? I believe it's histronic. Histronic personality disorder. What is that? Characterized by a long-standing pattern of attention-seeking behavior and extreme emotionality. Okay, so is that what we think is going on here with, uh, what's this gentleman's name? Ronald Parker. Ronald Parker. Let me tell you, I watched the documentary. It's Life on Death Row, episode two, two, two Judgment. Judgment. And when I initially watched this gentleman's testimony, I was like, oh, hey, maybe maybe we've missed something because he basically is testifying under oath that Guy has told him that he was going to murder his whole family over some money. A shrimp boat, some money. Some stuff, right? And so had I not already been through the Greg Kelly case where we had this gym owner that inserted himself in this matter for no reason, this would have been a big problem for me had I been on the jury. Well, 
it's just too weird that he told somebody he was going to do something fantastic. And then that thing happened and he was there. And he comes forward with it a year later. That's a big point of contention that I have with it. A year later, he comes forward with this information. Well, it, it wasn't even just that. It was that when he claimed that this actually was said, Guy hadn't even worked there for a year, right? So that's why it gets a little contentious there is because the defense attorney is saying, dude, you're lying. And he's like, no, I'm a preacher. I couldn't be lying. And they made it very clear that he was lying. I mean, guy hadn't worked there for an entire year when he claims that this conversation took place. We've got this guy. He's a problem. He's a problem for the defense, but I don't think he's a big problem. And I actually think they handled it very well. We had the same type of thing, and but when you when you look at the jurors, right, and when when the jurors in the Greg Kelly case were interviewed, that gym owner was a major problem, and so that's why I wanted to 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 just kind of look at what there there is a thing for this, and it's this histrionic personality disorder, this attention seeking thing. I think he probably felt like he was doing a good thing. While often lively, interesting, and sometimes dramatic, they have difficulty when people aren't focused exclu- exclusively on them. So it's just a disorder that's um, it's a t- attention-seeking disorder. Like, Living very average lives, and then something happens that's uh, spectacular around them, and so then they, they want to insert themselves in that situation. So that is an actual thing. So if you're ever on a jury... And and you've got this one part that just doesn't fit anything else. There may be a reason that we can't understand. The guy's just clearly got some mental issues. Johnny Johnson's laying back there just with this big old smirk on his face. This, you know, for lack of a better term, that shit eating grin. <laughs> and it's like when you first watch that, you're looking at the DA thing and you would think, wouldn't he be like, oh, gosh, you know, doing one of those he was good with it. He was good with it all the way up to the point that he started getting cross-examined, and then he he jumped in for for the rescue. You know, I, oh whoa whoa whoa, take it easy. He's he's, he's non-professional. Well, I think, it, I think at first he, right. I think at first he appreciated the gamesmanship by the, the defense attorney because he's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I probably shouldn't have gone this direction, right? Like this is blowing up in my face. That's what it kind of appeared like to me was that. You know, he actually uses that same type of, of behavior throughout that whole documentary where he's kind of uses that that preacher thing. And so whenever whenever he saw that, I think he saw a reflection of himself and and uh, appreciated that the defense uh, attorney had picked up on it, was calling him out on it, actually. I'm busted. Yeah, it's being news busted. For being anointed. Yeah. yeah. He was anointed prior. I think we're hitting on a bigger thing here, though, Jake. When you look deeper into some of the issues in this case, we had been discussing this previously. How can the jury look at the timeline, look at all the facts of the case and still go, yeah, you know, I think I I still think Guy did it. You know, I was watching that. And when when I when I saw the the jurors reactions when they were interviewed and and we're talking about the documentary that we got a lot of insight from that we watched that between the last episode and this episode i think the the bigger problem is that most people don't realize what their responsibility as a juror is 
And Mark, you do this for a living. What is the actual responsibility of a juror? The actual responsibility of the jury is to listen to the facts, listen to the testimony, draw a conclusion based on the truth they hear, based on the testimony they hear. And it, it, and, and it must be supported by evidence. I think it's more definite than that. I think their job, if you look at the way that our system was designed, I'm fascinated with how beautiful the system actually is, that they went out of their way to create this jury system where 12 people were picked at random and given very specific instructions. Why do you think they did that? They're to be judged by our peers, to be judged by people that are just like us. And it also comes down to reasonable doubt. So reasonable doubt by a reasonable individual concerning the facts of the case. But there's a couple of caveats to this, right? The, the first one is this. It's all or nothing. All 12 of you have to agree on this or we have a hung jury and a mistrial. It doesn't mean, look, if, if five people think that he did it, and what is that, seven? Seven. <laughs> and seven people think that he didn't. It's not like it's, uh, okay, he's now innocent. I don't know if everybody realized it. it's it's all, all 12 it's all 12 decide he's innocent or all 12 decide that he's guilty has to be unanimous and if there's and if there's anything else then it's a mistrial which doesn't happen in my opinion as often as it should I agree okay so why do you think that they have that set up that way I've got a theory. Stumped him. <laughs> I stumped him. I've got a theory. My theory is this. Because the jury system is the ultimate check valve for the entire system. You've got to, if, if you're going to convict this guy, you've got to convince 12 people that he did this beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, that's a pretty high standard. Correct? It is. Okay, so... Fast forward, how, how, how long ago was the criminal justice system? Jesse, how long have we been doing it this way? Uh, since our founding in, uh, what, 1776? Is that true? Can we Google? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm just, I'm shooting, I'm throwing it Do out we know, can Fact we, fine. That's actually good. How, I want to know how long we've been doing it this way. The earliest days of the jury system, December 17th, 1623, colony officials decreed that all criminal facts, also matters of trespass and debts between man and man, should be tried by the verdict of 12 honest men to be impaneled by authority in form of a jury upon their oath. Okay, so since pretty much 1623. Okay, so for a long time. So the goal was to have 12 honest people look at the... the case that the state is bringing against an individual and they decide. So if you look at the Guy Hines Jr. case and you go, how in the world could a jury of 12 people agree unanimously that he did this with, with, without reasonable doubt? How does that happen? How do we get to this place? Well, you got to back up. So you got two forces coming against each other. You got the district attorney approving a case, and then you got, of course, the lawyers that are trying to defend the accused. So the jury selection, back up to the jury selection process. As a district attorney, do you want the most educated, smartest person on that 
jury. No, there you're probably you you're probably going to get rid of the people that are most likely to um, critically think through this process, and you're going to do your best to get them off the jury panel. If you're a district attorney, yeah, but convict. if you if you if you load up the jury with people that are idiots, then you're going to have a few smart people on the jury that are going to push their agenda. You would think so. You're not going to have the dumb people convince the smart people to vote guilty. Well, some of these in that in that documentary, some of these guys seemed like they were educated people that would make a informed, educated decision based on the evidence that was presented. But they didn't. Ultimately, they were ultimately they were either swayed or they were um, manipulated. You know, it's like picking a a team in grade school on or on a sandlot who who we who do we want on our team who is going to best represent our interest the defense has certain interests they are pursuing the prosecution has their set of interests so they're f- trying to find the people that best represent from a demographic standpoint education job uh, you know how they communicate to to, to build their team to try to support their case. So it's, uh, you know, it's a game. It's, it's a, a game. game. Here's what I've learned from this. The juror's role is not to decide or try to figure out what happened. It's their job to simply view the facts and the evidence that the state has brought against this individual and decide if they've proven that beyond a reasonable doubt. Rather he did it or not is completely irrelevant. Did the state prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt? If they did, you must convict. If they didn't, you must acquit. And the reason that's important is because the facts that you're provided are very limited. You don't know the whole deal. And they thought their role was to try to figure out, well, is it... You know, nobody else has been brought into this equation. The state saying it's him. The defense attorney saying it's not him. There's eight people that are brutally murdered. He's the only person put in front of us. We don't want to let a monster go, so we have to convict him. Or we could be potentially letting out a danger in society. That isn't your job as the juror, being on the jury. Your job is to simply decide, did the state prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt? Now, I know for a fact that nobody's happy with the outcome of the O.J. Simpson uh, trial like case like you brought up last week. But I think we need more of that. I think we need jurors that are going to know their role, know their job, and say, hey, you've got to prove your case. You can't mishandle evidence. You can't get sloppy. You can't throw it all in the bathtub. You've got to actually, you've got to, and when juries hold that line, then what we're going to see is we're going to see prosecutors step up their game. We're going to see investigators step up their game because if you bring that crap in here, it ain't going to fly. We're not going to convict. And unfortunately, this guy's going to get out and there's ramifications to that that are terrible, but we can fix the system because In my opinion, the system is amazing. Whoever had the wisdom to design that check and balance is that's amazing. But you but everybody's got to know their role. You're either the quarterback or the wide receiver. You can't throw it and then try to go catch it. I learned all this over hearing a trial. And when you hear the jury charge that they actually give the jury in the very beginning, it's amazing. 
But I don't. I still think they feel like it's their job to figure out what happened and solve the crime, and it's not. That's not. And when you have them operating in that capacity, then they're not serving as just the check valve that they're supposed to serve as. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. They're trying to do too much. <laughs> so what's really interesting, Jake, is the judge in this case gave very specific instructions or a very specific charge as to what was expected of the jury in this case. And so it's really remarkable that they did not come to that conclusion at the end of the case or, or, or took it upon themselves to try to figure out what happened and, and come to this guilty right. charge. Look, if the jury makes the state prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, you don't have wrongful convictions because they've proved the case. We can get mad at every bad DA in the world. We can get mad at every sloppy investigation. But what we really ought to be focused on, if we want to keep Guy Hines Jr.'s from happening, if we want to keep Greg Kelly's from happening, is letting people know your responsibility as a juror is, is, is that you are that check valve. That if they haven't proven the case, you can't find them guilty. You have to acquit them so that the rest of these pieces will improve, will get better. You've got to isolate the problem. And that means some guilty people are going to go free, unfortunately. But if the system gets better, we'll eliminate wrongful convictions. And hey, by the way, when you convict the wrong guy, the guilty guy still goes free also. Gus, pull that juror footage in from the documentary. What's going on, ma'am? There's a, a, a guy just came home and... Uh, his whole family is dead. He's kind of hysterical. I can't understand. I haven't gone over there yet. Okay. This is this is guy. I don't know what his last name is. He he's freaking out. Yeah. Here, talk to. I I did tell him my whole family's dead. Okay. Tell me what's going on, sir. I I just got home just now. Like it was genuine I, I felt there was a lot of grief I felt like wow this guy's just found his family murdered uh, so I felt uh, I, I felt it was very strong in his favor when you came in the house what did the house look like it looks like a fucking murder scene he was kind of a kind of smart Alec um, towards the operator who was obviously trying to figure out what was going on and he was he snapped back jury members judging body language and deciding guilt or innocence based on body language of how somebody's sitting at a table yeah i've i've that was fascinating to me how much that played into the equation I was also fascinated at how much it played into the equation in the Greg Kelly case that most jurors that were interviewed, that was the number one thing. He just looked guilty to me. <laughs> what is what is looking guilty? What does that mean? What does that even 
not to mention that you have defense attorneys instructing their client, which I think is the worst advice in the world. I, look, I, I know you went to law school. You guys are playing some sort of averages. But to tell your client to look unnatural, to try to look stoic, to try to look to not show any emotion has got to be the worst. I mean, I, I haven't been involved in a lot of cases, only two so far. And, I, and, and that was present in both cases and worked out, you know, definitely negatively for the defendants because the jury, the jurors are just normal people that have been asked to to fill in this capacity. And now they're, and now they're looking at somebody that they they don't know what's going on, but they know that they look unnatural. They don't look like they're there showing normal emotions and being part of this experience. They're scared to death. You know, serving on a jury is one of the most important things we could do in, in our, in our society. So how many people do you know that once they receive a jury summons, they look for creative ways to get out of it? I've done it. I personally have done that. I'm ashamed of that, but I had no, I didn't feel like I had the time to do it. And I also, I'm glad that I did, did that because I didn't know what, what a juror was supposed to do at that time either. Right. I could have, I could have convicted Guy Hunt Jr. I could have convicted Greg Kelly. I could have done that because I'll never forget when I sat down with Keith Hampton and said, hey, why don't we just go sit down with Jana and tell her what happened? And he laughed at me. It was like, there's no way that that's going to help. That's, that, that is We're going to just give them our cards and they're going to use them against us. Because I think most people would like to give the benefit of the doubt to the one thing that they feel like they can trust in that courtroom, which is the prosecution. Because, hey, they're not being paid to represent this person. So they don't trust the, the attorney for the, for the defendant. They feel like they can trust cops. They feel like they can trust the district attorney or the prosecutor. So, and what I've found out is that, no, that there's no difference between a, a defense attorney and a prosecutor. They just have opposing roles, but they're both equally as untrustworthy in, in my experience. So let's talk about this jury. So, they did three uh, three days of deliberation, and it, that is actually impressive to me. It, well, considering it was only a week trial, a uh, week long trial, three days of deliberations quite a bit. And initially, it is reported that they were in deadlocked at nine to three. The Glenn County Superior Court Judge Judge Stephen Scarlett asked them to keep trying. Jurors recessed for the night after dinner with no verdict. On Friday morning, the judge announced one of the twelve jurors had been excused and would be replaced with one of three alternate alternates who had been who'd sat through the full week of testimony in the case. So this is where Judge uh, Juror 152 was dis- dismissed. Um, we had talked about the reason for that previously, but this article outlines it uh, a little bit differently. It says they came back with a verdict within four hours after it was read. Scarlett informed the jury that the death penalty had been taken off the table and therefore their service was done. Um, speaking on that juror, uh, prosecutor John B. Johnson told reporters dropping the death penalty had been necessary to get Hines' defense team to agree to let the judge dismiss a particular juror because of a situation, quote-unquote situation, that uh, contributed to the deadlock. He said neither side wanted a mistrial, which would have meant Hines would have been uh, tried all over again. So the reason that it says in this article that that juror was excused is he was... Uh, apparently 
being escorted to the gym uh, during this time that they were sequestered. And he was overheard saying, there is no way I can convict this gentleman. So that juror that had stated that that had apparently been overheard saying there's no way I could convict this gentleman was dismissed from the trial. The death penalty was taken off the ca off the table in order for everybody else to vote unanimously that he was guilty. And so that's, is that is that that's man, that's scary. a tough call. That's scary. That is a tough call because they've been deliberating, deliberating at this time for three days. You don't know which way, you know, both sides are blind to what's going on inside that deliberation room. And you've been approached and you can take the death penalty off the table, but you've got to lose this potentially problematic juror, which I think is a 50-50 play. Is he really pro problem problematic simply because he said on the way to being escorted to the gym that there's no way I can convict this gentleman? No, no, no. I'm not saying he's problematic for that reason. I'm saying the way that that is presented to both the state and the defense. the defense is that we've got a problem because they're not supposed to discuss that or, you know, say that they've made up their mind until after the deliberation, right? They can't, and, and from what I've been told, they can't say, I'm not willing to hear anything else. I've already made up my mind because the deliberation is actually considered part of the evidence. And so he, he, broke a technical rule i think letting people know hey we can sit here all which is what man he's a hero that that is what we need out of more jurors if the state hasn't proved their case you got to hold out like that but the defense and the prosecutor reached this deal which would be a hard deal to pass on if you know that there's a pretty good chance that you're going to get convicted because they've been deliberating three days and you don't know who this guy's doing, who this guy's or what he's doing. Now I would have preferred a hung jury. I would have oh, preferred, absolutely. I would have said, no, you're not dismissing anybody. A, a conviction actually um, validates the whole prosecution and the investigation. Right. That's what a conviction does. Right. It validates everything that's been presented and to validate what's been presented is, is obviously um, so then how did it go from nine to three to 12 to zero? It doesn't outline exactly. Yeah. It doesn't outline exactly how that, that went down. But, um, from what I've seen and, and what I've, the cases I've looked into, uh, that have jury deliberations, uh, there's a lot of pressure. There's mm -hmm. a lot of pressure in that room and you're the reason you Mike, holding out are the reason I'm not going home and spend the night with my family. You're the person that's keeping me away from my children. We've been over this 20 times and the facts aren't going to change. He murdered his entire family and you're going to be the reason that he gets out or you're going to be the reason that we stay because I'm not going anywhere either. Right. I'm going to I'm going to make sure that he pays for his crime. So that you that's, get in, you get in. Everybody's digging in at that point and it could just get ugly. I think this yeah. should have been, if anything, I think it, the fact that it wasn't nine to three the other way, the fact that the the jury wasn't overwhelmingly saying that that there's no case here based off of what I've seen. Now, that being said, I had a buddy that called me this week and said, hey, he could have murdered his entire family with a barrel into the shotgun if they were asleep. 
So that's one of the major items that the prosecution um, rested that rested their case on. They said that um, many or uh, quite a few of the victims um, were in bed at the time where they were found in bed. And they argued that a single assailant uh, could have inflicted that carnage. I looked at those photos. They were very disturbing. Uh, I don't recommend you do that if you're looking into this, but it appeared to me that certainly Heinz Sr., it doesn't ever look like he got up off that air mattress. It looks like he got hit right out of the gate and went down. And so that's one, one down, seven to go. My problem with all of that is this, is even if Guy Hines Jr. had been able to sneak in there and take out two or three of the more capable ones, at some point, people are going to start waking up. And a lot of the other photos that I reviewed, um, particularly the black gentleman, what was his name? Joe. Joe West. Joe. Joe was not killed in his sleep. I think he went down fighting. He had a lot of defensive wounds as well. And so, you know, at some point that's going to begin to wake people up. There was also a shotgun that had been retrieved and entered into the equation. And so I said, well, yeah, he, he, I, I, if I give you that, if, if I say, Hey, you possibly could have done this. Would you be able to convict him with the other parallel fact that he was able to do that with no blood on him? And he said, no, absolutely not. I was just, I wanted to make it clear that, that he could have possibly done this. If, if every, everything lined up perfectly, he might've been able to sneak through this house and, and, and take these people out without anybody escaping or anybody fighting back. He had a weapon. They did not, they were in complete blackout sleep and he was, and he came there with a mission that is possible. And I, 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 I think that that's a valid point. I think that that's something that we need to consider. But to think that he could do that without getting any blood on him, and then more importantly, then go withstand 16 hours of interrogation, I think that that's highly, highly unlikely. All right, so Jesse, you've got uh, Jennifer Sutton on a Zoom call. Uh, Jennifer, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us what you're doing. How did you get involved in the Guy Hines Jr. case? Um, okay, so um, I'm currently a student studying criminology with the Open University, and I also write for um, my own website. It's a blog about true crime where we study criminological aspects of crime, sociological aspects of crime, and theories of crime. Um, and I am in some groups in regard to this. Jodie's like um, a very prolific poster. She loves to promote everything for guys. She really pushes for him. Um, she posts regularly in these groups, and we have to accept and decline posts. And... You know, I'd noticed a couple of times that she'd posted this, and we always have to decline these posts. And one day I thought, well, I'm just going to read this, because she always posts the same thing. So I sat down, sort of had a read of everything. And kind of halfway through, I, I couldn't really believe what I was reading. So I thought, oh, well, this is definitely a story I'd be interested in writing about for my blog. Um, because, you know, nothing seemed to add up. There seemed to be a lot of missing bits of information, missing bits of time. Um, then she told, I got in contact with her and basically asked to know a lot more. And she told me to watch um, the BBC Three Life on Death Row um, series, which I did, uh, which only just 
raised more questions really about the whole article um, and it got to the point that I'd spent about two or three weeks really reading into it and I decided that there was definitely something not right you shouldn't so, be in prison so you've studied um, you've studied this case in detail I've I got a 39 page kind of outline of all the characters involved timelines oh, things like that this, this, that's just a portion of what I've looked at. One of the reasons we jumped into um, reaching out to you, Jennifer, is the timeline that you developed was um, very thorough. And um, we that's what we really wanted to have you on to discuss, the timeline and, and what um, where it has holes and where it doesn't have holes and if Guy could have uh, possibly committed this crime yeah, yeah the timeline's taken me a while to develop and it's still i feel like it's still i'm still developing it there's there's chunks that are still missing although it's thorough i think there could be more information i mean i'm not sure how we get some of those things but definitely it's something that i spent a lot of time on because i think it's so vital to this case because the prosecution's timeline is very whimsical well, help us help us from the thousand foot view here, right? If Guy was going to commit commit this crime, he would have had to do it from what time to what time? So, if he was going to have committed this crime under the prosecution timeline, which would take him two to three hours, he would not have got to the Best Western Motel until after six a.m., which would have meant he would have been killing them from two thirty a.m. until at least five twenty a.m. And, and cleaning up and getting everything done, which he, he could, that's the only way to fit their timeline in. But then he doesn't arrive at St. Simon's on time to be on camera if we, if we do it on their timeline. So there's no way to make this work on the state's timeline, is what you're saying? Well, no, because of the, it's, it's because of the phone call. So if you look at, at 216, there's a phone call that Michelle made. Now this phone call... Um, She's normal in this phone call. She leaves a voicemail message. She's calm. It's not a distress call. So clearly they're all still alive at this point. She's in the trailer with them. You know, there's no alarm. There's nothing alarming going on at that point. So they can't claim that it started before this point. So we have only got from 2.16 a.m. to work with. So let me, let me get into that just a minute. So one of the victims made a distress call. She was very calm, collected, clearly wasn't under no, arrest. It wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't a distress, distress call. call. It was just a regular call. This is how we know that weren't under attack. Right, to, right, right. Yeah, so she she was not under duress, clear, calm, collected, left a short voicemail. At what time was that? 2.16 a.m. on the 29th. There was a second phone call from Michelle's phone at 3.45 a.m. What do we know about that yeah. phone call? We know that that call lasted 30, 36 seconds. Right. Um, we don't know who, apparently we don't know who that call was to. They don't know who the number was. It's a mystery number. Um, and then there was another one misdialed, so it didn't connect at, I think, 3.48. So how, Where can we know, how can we not know who that 345 phone call was made to? Was it well, uh, just a lack of investigation? How can we not know? I don't understand how they cannot know. Because according to uh, the, the documentation that you can get hold of and read and the information, um, they only photographed Michelle's phone 
the call list of Michelle's phone. They didn't actually look into it any further. So they didn't pull a phone record. No, and this was one of my questions in the document that I sent you, that if I had questions for law enforcement, these are the questions I'd be asking them. So in other words, they didn't do a a digital extraction of the phone. No, they didn't. And um, another thing was as well, Guy, there's in the trailer at the time, it's noted by a few people that Michelle had a mobile phone, Chrissy had a mobile phone, and also um, Joe had a mobile phone. Now, the only phone that was recovered on site was Michelle's. So where are the other two mobile phones? Why are they missing? Guy also made a statement in, I think it was the first, it was the first interview, I think, where he says that he used the payphone at the Friendly Express to call Chrissy to ask Joe and Chrissy to come and pick him up. That would mean that the Friendly Express payphone would have the call records of the contact number for Chrissy or Joe's phone, which would verify that there were other mobile phones that should have been found. But they didn't do that. It would also verify that Guy was at the Friendly Express at the time that he said he was, because they were saying he wasn't there because he wasn't on camera. So we got at least two phones missing and call records that were never... And Guy tried to call all of those three phones. I don't know if he tried to call all three. He said that he he contacted Chrissy. So to contact Chrissy, he would have either phoned Joe's phone or Chrissy's phone because they were together at the time. Okay, but there was no... Well, we don't know because they didn't extract. Well, they didn't look into it, so we'll never know that. They they had their keys. They had their keys. They weren't looking for them anymore. Exactly. There was there was no point investigating them. They had their guy. Now, wasn't there a phone that they found with Guy upon his arrest? In the trunk, yes, along that, with a shotgun. That's Michelle's phone. That was the one of the phones that was covered. However, Guy said that when he got into the trailer, the first thing he did was when he went into the room and he saw the shotgun, he picked up the shotgun out of panic because he thought they might still be in there. When he, re- he was holding the shotgun, when he realised that, that no one was in there, he then started looking for a phone to call 911. That's when he finds Michelle's phone. He tries to flip it open to call 911, but the battery's dead. He can't call it, so he shoves it in his pocket, carries on looking round. Then he runs out calls for 911, which you hear... Um, he goes back in, I think, shortly after once the 911's called and he said he still had the gun in his hand and the phone in his pocket at that point. So I think he they just end up in the car because he was disorientated and he was just running around holding it in his hand with the thing because he you know he's not really sure what to do which you can kind of hear in the phone uh, call you can hear like okay this guy's just found his family he's kind of going into shock now he's panicking a bit you can hear in his voice he's kind of getting scared then he's crying then he's coherent. I've been known to put again. milk in the pantry when I'm not paying attention. So, you know, I think that I, I, I think that that makes sense. He looked for a phone. He found her phone. He also was thinking about ditching the shotgun because he wanted to put that in the trunk of the car because it was stolen. And so he just tossed the phone. I mean, there, there was no reason to steal her phone and try to get rid of it because, you know, clearly he then immediately said that that he had it. And then also there was no reason to get rid of that when you got a dead body of the person in the room. Did they make an issue out of that in the court? Because we're waiting on the record. Did they make an issue out of him um, hiding that phone? What were they worried? Were, were they worried that there was calls between them or texts that he was deleting? Why, why was that an well, issue? You know, they, 
well, they weren't worried because it took them three years to charge the phone and look on it. So they weren't worried about okay. phones. Um, I, I think they used a lot of the stuff in the car to try and make God look like some kind of dece deceiver, the, liar. The pills, the... Oh, look, this guy can't be trusted. Look, he's trying to hide evidence. But he wasn't because as soon as they asked him about is there anything we need to know, he said straight away that they were in the car. Sure. You know, the, the couple of things that he did that were really stupid, touching the gun, touching the phone, which, you know, if you're in the moment, you, you, that stuff can happen. He immediately fessed up whenever he was whenever he was under duress. But somehow he was able to keep a stoic face and lie to the end, still lying to this day about murdering eight people. That makes no sense to me. As Jackie Johnson would make you believe. Right, right. Yeah, I'm saying if you, if you bought the if you bought the state's case, it's it would it would be that man this this guy quickly fessed up about these two things, but a meet but but then has denied the Everything these other else. things for for ten years. And at that time they didn't know that, but he withstood 16 hours of interrogation when he immediately coughed up. I, I just think that, that that just goes to show you're, you're not dealing with a guy that's been trained in the art of deception. How does the state make this a viable prosecution and conviction? They managed to get a guilty conviction based on their evidence. Um, I'm not sure if you, from what I understand and what I've seen of transcripts of the case, the prosecution used a lot of confusion tactics when they were talking about and explaining things, um, which I feel like a jury. I've always said from the start, I feel like a jury who's just everyday people wouldn't know what was going on and fully understand what they were committing to um, based on the bombardment of evidence that they were given, contradictory evidence. I mean, there was evidence that was literally disproven in court but then used in closing statements, which confused me because it's been disproved. It shouldn't then be used as a, an argument for why that they should convict this man. Yeah, I think I believe it started with the um, lack of investigation and then a DA um, picking up that lack of investigation and, and running with it. That's kind of what I came to the conclusion of. The ironic thing in this case to me is you've got circumstantial evidence and you've got direct and physical evidence. And in this particular case, circumstantial evidence outweighed the actual evidence that was collected at the scene processed in a lab it's to me it's outrageous you say it outweighed it what does that mean for us that don't have training like circumstantial to me if if there's a bludgeoning of eight people there should be way more physical evidence than circumstantial correct correct Circumstantial evidence is evidence that they're they're assuming they're making a connection based on a thought. The circumstances. Based on the circumstances. But when you bludgeon eight people to death, there should be actual physical evidence. You shouldn't you you shouldn't have to hang your hat on any kind of circumstantial evidence. In this particular case, there was nothing in the way of physical evidence that tied guy to the crime well also the handling of it was um everything was commingled so um the handling of the physical evidence negated that physical evidence where they couldn't use it anyway 
I think that something that we have to contend with is anytime you have a situation where you've got a really brutal crime, it puts this extra burden on the jury. They, they need, they feel like they need to figure out what happened. And so instead of, instead of relying on this, the evidence that the state has provided, right. They're giving the state the benefit of the doubt because they want to solve the crime. They're there. There was this brutal crime. You've got this jury who we saw in the video in the beginning that, that clearly wanted to be an active role in, in creating justice for somebody but they also have got to have known that the state really screwed this up. I mean, on every level, they screwed it up. So, but apparently they didn't, Jake. Apparently they didn't realize at all. The jury. Apparently they didn't realize at all that they screwed this up. They convicted them. No, the jury. No, 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 no. They, they, they knew that they knew that the state botched the case. I mean, the state admitted they had several experts i mean all of that was under they they knew that the state had messed up nobody has said hey we've we've done a good job here I, am i wrong about that jennifer uh well no i mean uh, i think it was matt Dowring did say he was confident they've got the right person but i think that was as most uh, celebratory as it kind of got for them was that they said they Oh, the police chief um, was very confident he had the right person. No, I understand that. But I'm saying the jury has clearly given the state and the police department a free pass. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Because they know they everybody knows they did a bad job on the investigation. But the thing is, they've placed their trust in the state that the state are telling them the truth. And I think um, that was something that me and Jodie have previously discussed on on her podcast was that. Uh, this, this, in some ways, it's sort of a confirmation bias in the regard that they've already come into court with the preconceived idea that these people are going to tell me the truth, you know, I can trust these people. Whereas I'm not sure how to feel about these other people who are being accused. Now, that's not the whole innocent until proven guilty aspect at all. And, they, and a lot of them may not have even realised they've gone into court with that kind of viewpoint because it, it's something you're not acknowledging, it's something you just learn. In life, you know, you're taught to trust police officers. You're taught to trust what the state tell you. You know, they're there for your best interest. They're there, they're there to look after you and look out for you. So you really have this idea in your in your mind they're trying to get the bad guys. That's, that's correct. An idea they've gone into court with, I think. Well, and I think a lot of people don't care if there was procedural errors or mistakes made if they got the right guy. You know, exactly. it, if they got the right guy and, you know, they've brought it to court so clearly they they feel like they have they must have something on this guy to bring to get it all the way to this point and i think that's what a lot of people do think um you get this impression when you read the newspaper articles and the forums in the blogs that people think you know we've been told this guy was a drug addict he was no good he was this you know they've done the right thing by convicting him it must have been him no questions and that's a lot of that's down to pre conceived ideas about stereotyping and things like that. And I think Jennifer, as a student of criminology, when you look at all of the, the mishappenings in this, in this case, I think that a lot of people are torn between getting the right guy, making sure that justice is done, but then also respecting the process and holding a line there. That's what we have to do because we, we can't have it both ways. We either have to expect the process to be fair and be followed and, and get it right and nail it, 
and then we can put the bad guys away or we've got to just basically put a jury up there and 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 let them follow their gut feeling as to the way that this defendant looks or appears or carries himself and then it becomes an acting class right we we better really teach innocent people how to act under duress because if we're not going to i mean you can't look at the way that all in my opinion you can't look at the way that all this evidence was handled and not say regardless of who committed this crime because of the procedural errors we have to acquit him oh yeah definitely i agree with that it's um no it, there's there was too many in my in my opinion there was too many errors for this to ever be a solid case once you've got things like cross-contamination you start to question everything else that's being done in the investigation uh it's you know it's eligibility the same as when you're finding out that you know things are being left in cars for 24 hours and you don't really know what's gone on in that time. Now, we're not saying that, you know, he grabbed these shorts and started having a party and then wore them places and things, but still, it, it leaves questions and gaps to say, well, you know, what other things didn't they do properly and what other things may have they tried to cover up? And, and it just, to me, it just destroys the integrity of the whole inve investigation from the start, which, which, how you can get that to go into a court and someone say, yep, I feel like this is, been handled brilliantly we can definitely take this to court we've got a solid case i don't really understand how it got to that point how important is that really do. how important <laughs> is it for investigators to earn and then keep the trust of the the jury throughout the entire case i was trying i've been trying to put myself in the juror's position in their shoes what would it be like for me as the juror However, it's an issue for me to try and do that because I do have knowledge in how certain things work in courts and things, so I've already got that advantage. Um, for someone who doesn't really know anything about court cases, about evidence, about how investigations should be handled, I think it wouldn't be that hard to convince someone. We've done, we've done a good job. We've done a, a, enough of a job to convict this guy, enough of a job to convince you that there is guilt here in some aspect. Um, I'm not sure how they managed to do that other than really confusion sort of throughout the whole case. So more or less to manipulation. They to confuse the jury a lot. When in the documentary, the two girls especially sound very confused about the whole thing, and they do even say they were confused throughout the trial, but yet still made a decision, which at the beginning of the trial they were told, you know, any wavering that you can't make a decision on that. You have to be 100% sure that this person is guilty. They could have done a better job and they should have known better. But I, I think you I think you nailed it, Jennifer. I think that confidence has created some blind spots that they don't even know exist. And, mm -hmm. and even people, lay persons can come in and look at this case and see those blind spots that they're not even, uh, that they're completely oblivious to. Well, you but, know, another thing we need to consider is it's not just the police because once the investigation got, is completed, it got picked up. By it the DA. goes to the DA. Right. The DA makes the decision to indict, prosecute, convict. Yeah. Hey, Jennifer, thank you so much for talking with us today and sharing what you know about the guy Hans junior case. It's very impressive and we really appreciate it. Okay, thank you for having me, guys, and I'll be back soon. All right, bye. Thank you. Bye. bye. Do you know if um, 
when they examined these bodies, did they check under their fingernails for DNA? Did they do all of that stuff? All of these bodies should have been processed for fingerprints and they weren't. So that evidence is lost forever. There's clothing in, in one of the bathrooms that had dripped blood on it that they photographed, but they never collected any of it. And the fact is that none of the victims were ever in that bathroom. If it's not Guy Hines' DNA, then there's somebody else out there that's involved in this crime, and that was never even looked at. They never even collected it, much less tested any of it. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. If there's skin in the fingernails, like DNA, there would be DNA the way they were fighting off. I mean, some of those. Now, was this were... prior to that time? No, it's 2009. Mark. We're talking DNA was around in 93, 94. 87. Okay. Prior to what time? Prior to the time where they were actually like going all CSI on this stuff. Oh, no, this was CSI started from 96 till till now. Okay. In fact, uh, early two, you know, 2002 on up was, I mean, you had 10, 11 CSI shows every day of every week of every, every year. No, no, no. I mean, like where that actually became protocol in, in police investigations. No, when it's, did that... it's been. Well, your OJ case reference again, that was 94. And that was one of the first times it was really introduced well, on a, in a big way. Yeah. I DNA. mean, we, we've been doing fingernail scrapings. Is that true? OJ's was the first? Well, they made a big deal of DNA in that case. Yeah. DNA became really big in, in the OJ case, but DNA DNA was relatively new. It, it began in 87 in England. So it, it took it a couple of years to really start to gain hold here in the States. Well, okay. worldwide. Let's take out the narrative that he couldn't possibly have done this. Let's concede that point and say, okay, he might have been able to do that, but it's highly unlikely he was able to do that and not get any blood on him. It's highly unlikely he was able to do that and withstand 16 hours of interrogation. Now, I think the most important part is, was he able to do it in the timeline that the state laid out for us? So if you would, Mark, cover the uh, prosecution's timeline. According to the prosecution's timeline, from 2.30 a.m. to 4.30 a.m., they state that Guy kills his family, and it took him about two or three hours to execute the family. And that's what the state said. That's what the state said. From 4.30 a.m. to 5.30 a.m., one hour, Guy washes his body, he hides the weapon, and he drives to St. Simon's Island. Which is 30 minutes away. And that's where his brother Tyler was staying. Yes. From 5.30 a.m. to 6 a.m., Guy is seen on camera at the Best Western Motel and is seen by a clerk at Parker's store. 6 o'clock to 7 a.m., Guy is with Tyler and friends, and then they go eat breakfast. From 7.30 a.m. to 8 a.m., Guy drives back to New Hope from St. Saint Simmons. From 8 to 8.30, Guy finds his family and, and uh, he calls 911. 8.30 a.m. to 9.30 a.m., law enforcement arrives on the scene and they begin the investigation. So they're, okay, they're saying that he washed his clothes so, yeah. They're, so what they're saying is that he he washed his body, hides weapon, and drives to St. Simon, Simon's Island all in an, in hour. an hour. So guy lives at this trailer. He doesn't have another home. 
He doesn't have um, another place to go. He's this is where all of his belongings are. He's in the same shorts that he was in the night before. He's been wearing these shorts all day long. Well, and clearly so, they can't say that he wasn't wearing the shorts because the shorts have this key piece of evidence on them. So what they're saying is he didn't get he didn't get blood on his clothes. So he took off his 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 murder clothes. He just hung those up. He took a shower and washed his body because he would have had to have blood on his body. And then he put his murder clothes back on and then went to go see his brother. And the, that's what they're saying. The murder clothes that he has um, have a, one spot of blood on the inside of his shorts. The undershorts. The undershorts um, that's got three people's DNA mixed into it. I would never think that you could think that you could tell him that he took off his murder clothes, flip flops, gym shorts, shorts, T-shirt. And then was reckless enough to put him back on, knowing that he was going to then come back and report the crime scene later. How does the jury see this timeline if they're seeing the same timeline that we're seeing? Well, according to Guy, whenever he was running through the house, he was checking people's pulse by by touching their wrist. Um, a lot of them were so severely beat and, and mangled, but he was still running around checking people's pulse by putting his hands on his wrist. Well, th yeah, there's, there's, I have no problems with that. I have no problems with him having a drop of blood on his shorts and him, him having a drop of blood on his flip flops. I think anybody that walked into that crime scene would have had something on them because it's, it's horrific, especially if they're touching stuff because it's everywhere. It is impossible for me to think that he was able to murder these people and not have more blood on his murder clothes. And for the state to say that these are in fact his murder clothes, that he put the murder clothes somewhere while he then washed his whole body and then put them back on. That to me is like, Oh, and by the way, he only, he did all that in 30 minutes. And yes, well, maybe that's why he didn't. Okay. So, so listen to how take we're off his murder clothes. Listen to how we're describing this. You're suspicious. You have questions. You have doubt. So we look at that as reasonable doubt. What I'm actually trying to find a way to wrap my mind around making the state's theory just palatable. Just something that I, I'm a salesman. That's what I do. I'm trying to find a way that I could sell their store to the jury. And I just, it, that's a really difficult thing to do. Is it just me or does two hours to be doing what they said he did to his family. To me, that seems like a very long time to be beating, murdering your family. Oh, they didn't want to concede that, but all of the other witnesses they called, they said, how long would it take somebody to do this if they did it by themselves? And so they counted all of the strikes on all of these people and, and figured that if one person was going to do it, that it would take that long. That's a long time. That's a long time. That's a lot of cardio, man. There's been no other case in history where one person has killed so many people without using restraints or a weapon. It's just, it's got holes everywhere. Well, I'll tell you what. So the direction that we're headed, we, uh, we are not going to talk about this case every single week. 
but we have hired an attorney. I cannot tell you who it is yet because we're waiting on the state of Georgia to approve this, but we've hired an attorney that I will say that I know very well and I have a good working relationship with. And that's all I can tell you until that we can, we can tell you more, but this is going to take some big bucks to get this done the right way. This is a, an out of state thing. So the attorney that we've hired is, is a local attorney and we're going to send him out that direction to, to do all of this. And so here's what, here, what we've tried to do is to give you what we know. We've tried to bring you into this case. It's egregious enough for me that I felt compelled to take the lead. And if you feel compelled to help us, I want to, I want to, I just want to make this request, please donate to our GoFundMe. I made a personal promise to this attorney that I would personally guarantee this, that I would make sure he got paid every penny that he is worth and that he invoices me for. But I'm hoping that you guys will help me because I carried that load for Greg Kelly. And I'm hoping that we can carry that load together because look, you may not, Guy Hines Jr. may not be somebody that you can personally identify with. And I think that's going to be the challenge in this case. I think that's why we had never heard of this before, because it's one of the craziest stories that I've ever heard. But it happened to, let's just face it, it happened to somebody that most of the world is going to view as trailer trash. And what does that say about our society? right? That we are going to view people. If this was your all American kid, the entire world would have, this would have never happened. I truly believe that this would have never happened. And so we have to have a gut check. We have to look ourselves in the mirror and go, Hey, listen, do I really care about justice when it's only for people like me? Or am I going to care about justice? Because if it, if it isn't good for Guy Hines Jr., then it isn't good for me. I think that we have to seriously do some soul searching on this, and I hope that you will join us on this journey. From a standpoint of physical evidence, there's, there's just none. There's not, it's not that there's not much or there's, there's only a little. There's nothing that, that puts him in that scene at the time that the murders happened. So you have really no physical evidence at all to tie him to these crimes. I think we got this case for January of 2012 and it took us a good four or five months before we really understood what was occurring here. What we find with a lot of police departments is that they're actually just almost our sightseers. They're coming in here and they're picking up what they can see, but they're not really searching for that hidden evidence. And there was a lot of hidden evidence here that was overlooked. One of the biggest things that we saw out of this was the fact that it was very clear that this was not carried out by one person alone. Mouth of the South, we're out.